Welcome to Resilience Unraveled, your regular guide sharing tools and expertise to build a life full of positivity and possibility. Here's your host, Russell Thackeray. So today I'm talking to Alison Benny. Hi Alison, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Russell. Good, all right, Alison. Well, tell me all about yourself. Tell me how you describe yourself if you met someone. Oh, okay. Well, I started my life out as daughter of a hotelier. So I was born and bred and brought up in the hotel trade. So working for a small family-run business. Did the first part of my career in hotel and catering. So I went off to college, qualified in that, and worked in hotels and bars and restaurants and various things. Worked for Grand Met at one point, which people will remember. And um, and then decided to make a move into HR and training. So I went back at 30 and did a postgrad at um, Glamorgan University, which was very interesting. Lived in halls of residence. Um, got that qualification and then joined Marriott as um, a personnel and training um, assistant manager. And that just relights my life, really, doing HR. I absolutely love it. So I worked for Marriott and then um, Trust House for a while, so, so Forte for a while. Um, and then subsequently joined WH Smith in HR, which was amazing. We worked for the distribution part of their business. And latterly, in terms of employment, um, I worked for a company called Unite, which is the biggest private sector student accommodation business in the UK. And I joined, we had about 200 people when I joined. And when I left, we had about 1,000. So that was a massive growth business, which was phenomenally interesting. And then I decided, saw a gap in the market for small businesses for SMEs um, in terms of HR support and decided to move in that direction. So I set up Enlightened HR and away I went. And that was in 2004. Wow, 2004. I think that's when we first met, wasn't it? That's 12 years ago. I think it probably was around about then, yeah. So actually that's a really interesting story and I'm particularly interested in this idea that you went back to university. So how... What, what drove you to that decision? Well, I'd been doing um, training as part of my line management role in, sort of in, the, in an operations role and discovered that I really liked training. Um, and the trigger for that, funnily enough, was being trained to be a trainer. So prior to that, I'd had jobs where I'd had a responsibility for training in my team, but not particularly confident I was very good at doing it. So you sort of duck it a little bit and don't do it. And then I've worked for one organisation and all the managers went through Train the Trainer. And it was just brilliant. And I ended up running all these customer services um, programmes for all the time. It was a big seasonal business. So pretty much closed in the winter and over six months summer. So we recruited about, uh, about 150 people all in one go to open for the sub-season. And um, we designed this training together and um, and I delivered a lot of it and just discovered I really like training so um so sort of subsequent to that I did another operations role ran a pub for a while but this hankering to to move into something in the HR training sort of field 
looked at it, but I'll be perfectly honest, as a line manager doing training to move into a training manager's role, you don't have enough experience to be able to go in at um, a managerial level. And so I sort of looked at it and thought, how do I get into this? I either need experience, I don't have enough of that, or I need a qualification. So I looked at all the different options and decided to do the qualification. So I decided to do the, um, the postgrad in, in human resource management at Glamorgan. So, um, so I did that and I did it full time in nine months. So, which was great, because I admire anybody who can do it part-time, because doing CIPD part-time is really hard work. So, Whereas, I sort of gave up my life for nine months and moved and lived in halls of residence with all these lovely 18-year-olds when I was 30. Huh. And, um, yeah, it was a great experience, but I'm not sure I'd repeat it in terms of living in halls, I have to say. But, um, but the course was good, and it moved me from sort of... From an operational role, it gave me the ability to be able to move into um, into into an HR role. So a lot of people, a lot of people have this sort of romantic notion, or even just a notion, to go into HR or training. Um, what are the things people should be aware of? As you know, because you're an experienced practitioner now. What about what what should people be aware of in terms of moving into it? Are there? Any- I think. Sorry. No, I was going to say, are there any things I- that you know, any ups and downsides that people should be aware of? Yeah, there's always ups and downs in every job, isn't there? But um, I think there's a couple. Of, there's a couple of things, and they're different for training and and the HR per- personnel, as it was, sort of um, style of things. So I think one thing to be aware of if you're going to try and move into it is that there's usually only a couple of HR roles per business, and they could be covering a headcount of you know, 500 to 1,000 people. So HR-type roles are a bit few and far between. So if you're in a business where you can move into that role within a business you're already in, that's always the best best and easiest way probably to do that, even if you're not actually in an HR role, if they've got an HR function, you know, you can sort of piggyback onto that a little bit. Um, the other thing that I always sort of say is I started off so I went to Marriott and then to Forte, both in a combined role as um, as training and HR. What I found very interesting is that training's great. It's very, um, it's actually very proactive. So you look at the business strategy, you plan your training around the business strategy, you schedule it in, you book your delegates, um, and that's fantastic. So that's all very proactive. Um, particularly the hotel and catering business, which obviously these were hotel businesses, what I found, Marriott was great. People would say, actually, do you know what, I can't work that day because I'm hooked on training. When I joined Forte, it was a little bit different in those, and bearing in mind this is quite a long time ago, where there'd be some stress point in the business and actually people wouldn't come on the training because they had to work. Yeah. So yeah. that that that's quite an interesting sort of um, dynamic. And want to be aware of, I think, and I found quite frustrating, I have to say, and the, and it was the same for me in that joint role because HR, whilst it whilst it's it should be um, proactive and it should be looking forward and planning and everything else, quite a lot of it is actually reactive because something happens which you have to deal with. 
and quite often it's now. Um, and that, so what I found with those roles was I was getting pulled in two directions. And career-wise, I very strategically actually looked at my career and thought I need to focus on one or the other. And I um, decided to focus on the HR side. And I got this great opportunity to move into WH Smith News um, as an HR advisor, and that's what I did. And then I, from there on, I've, I do a little bit of training here and there, but mostly I focus on the legal employee relations um, HR side um, because okay. you don't get that sort of push-pull thing that goes on otherwise. Okay, so you, you've alluded to this idea that um, you went back to university and you know did it full time, and other people would be saying, "Blimey, there's no way I could do that. I have to do it part time." What? I mean, how, how did you how did you cope with nine months off work? You know, you know, living in as old as a residence with a bunch of eighteen year olds. <laughs> no, as I say that, it sounds more attractive. But uh, yeah. yeah. How did that work? Well, it was a bit like grandma at the end of the corridor saying, "Will you lot please go to bed?" Because <laughs> when you do the postgrad, certainly at that time, I did my postgrad ninety uh, ninety four to ninety five. Um, certainly at that time. We were doing one day release, so we were out a full day working in a business, and I worked for Marriott in um, on a placement in Cardiff. And the other four days of the week, you were actually doing 35 hours of lectures over those four days. Now, if you're doing an um, undergraduate degree, some of them were only doing four or five hours of lectures a week. Yeah. So... You know, we so from the point of view of being like work, it was very structured like work um, because it, you know you can imagine that's pretty much full time. So that was that was quite interesting being with all these youngsters who were only doing you know I think probably the most number of lectures any of them were doing probably about twelve a week, twelve hours a week. So that was quite interesting. Being, I'd always thought I was quite young and hip and trendy because I'd been working in a nightclub up to the point that I went to do my postgrad and discovered that actually I perhaps wasn't quite as hip and young and trendy as I thought I was. Um, and all these lovely youngsters going away to uni who couldn't cook and didn't know how to do their own washing and, of course, they all trotted along to ask me. But it was, it was a brilliant experience. I did it like that because I knew that's Well, for two reasons. One, because I knew it suited my personality better. Um, because I'm not great at doing things part-time where I've got something to distract me off. You know, it's like, oh, actually, that's urgent, that's important, and the urgent overtakes the important. So I knew if I just had that to do, that I'd get through it much right. better and it would suit me better. It also meant I got my qualification in nine months as opposed to sort of two or three years. Um, other people... How, and I, you know, I took out a big loan to do it, right. gave up the house that I had, um, I was renting a house and I had a job and all that sort of thing. So it was a huge commitment. And a lot of people said, gosh, you're really brave. And I myself didn't see it like that at the time. And um, and I think afterwards, maybe for some of them, it was like, for bravery, stupid, you know, that's a huge risk, <laughs> which I guess it could have been. But I think there is something about you have to shut one door to open another one. And I was just, I was incredibly lucky. I had a great placement in the Marriott and I got a job at the end of it. I was the first person in our group to have a job secured before we finished the course. So, you know, I was incredibly lucky, if you like, to um, 
to, to do, be able to do that as well. So, um, so but it just it suited me. So you've talked a couple of times about making these big decisions, like um, going back to it, going back to university, um, taking different jobs, and even you know starting your own organization, you know, your own business. So you talked about you looked at your career in a strategic way. So how did you do that? What things did you look at, consider? What you know, what advice could um, you give people who are you know maybe sort of thinking about a big decision? What criteria could they use, for example? Okay, so post grad, I got jobs and I had three or four years experience in HR doing HR and training so that that gave me a good base because now I've got both the qualification and the experience and then I looked at this actually I would focus on one or the other and I was personal training manager in a hotel or HR manager in a hotel at that point so you're sort of a bit on your own really um in that role because there's one HR manager and then I had um, an HR officer working for me but I wasn't I was learning as I went along but essentially almost learning on my own if you like and I just felt I needed to be part of a large HR team so that I could just absorb knowledge and that was the advantage with joining so I looked at it and thought right okay I was working in London at the time I didn't want to work in London so I looked at where do I want to live and I'd lived in Swindon before I like the area got friends there and there's lots of head offices in Swindon so I thought right okay I'm going to focus my job search there I'm going to look for a job focusing either on HR or on training with a really good company with a big HR team and that's what I did and I got a job at Smith's and um, joined an HR team of um, I think there was 12 of us in total so there was but it covered comp and Ben um, HR from the legal sort of point of view it covered learning and development and all the admin function that went with it so from a learning point of view there was always something going on there right. were people more senior to me in the same office and you can absorb information in the note plan office just by being and having your ears sort of pricked I mean I've said oh that sounds interesting what's that and we used to just um you know I'd turn to my colleagues and say what just have this call about this what do you think I think this what do you think yeah. which was a huge advantage I think you know like in any job if you're on your own as the expert, it, it's very challenging. But was it, what's interesting about what you've said there in particular is that you had a bunch of criteria and you ended up with a job that fulfilled all those criteria. And I think yes. And I think the point is people don't often think about what they do and don't want. They sort of just randomly look about, don't they, and wait for something to appeal, appear for them or appeal to them. And it's interesting your much more strategic and planned approach there. I think, yeah, it's interesting, actually, because I think that's, to some extent, probably, because previous to that, so before I moved into HR, I think I had been a bit more like that. I'd moved around a reason about hotel and catering is a very uh, transient sort of environment, and I had been much more like, oh, I quite fancy that job, I'll, I'll go for that one. So I think at, at this point, this was where, actually, this is time to really take life seriously. I've paid a lot of money for my um, post-grad I've, um, you know, I've gone and done that and I've got 
a proper career, if you like. Even though I'd always been in quite senior management positions in in catering operations, you know, it was a, it was a very different way of, of looking at it, and it, it did make me look at it much more strategically around what did I want, and you know, what was the career path for me going forward, and what did I need for my personal development. Yeah, yeah, that's important, isn't it? So I'm guessing that you. When you were thinking about setting up your own business, I mean, you talked about seeing a gap in the market, but there must have been all sorts of um, risks, challenges, concerns, moving from this sort of senior management role in a large organisation into into being a one-person operation to start off with. Yeah, I guess this is where the the risk and the bravery bit comes in to some extent. I was in a fabulous job with a great company. We loved it. And... um, but I was all—I was an HR, a divisional HR director. I was travelling all over the country. I was away a lot, um, and I got to that point where I just got a bit fed up. I suppose with the corporate side of business, and I had got a bit fed up with doing quite so much training, uh, so, quite so much travelling, and other people being in control of my diary, and to some extent sitting in meetings where I didn't necessarily feel I was adding value. Right. So the whole corporate environment thing and I um anybody who does a bit of NLP which we've done together in in small chunks um I'm a I'm a I'm an away from person so I tend to know what I don't want so I did that list of I don't want to be doing so much traveling um I don't want to have to be in different places and different days of the week um I don't want somebody else in control of my my life and my diary and I don't necessarily want to part the corporate world anymore so what can I do because my parents had a small business and I just think I mean they sold in 1988 but I look back and sort of think gosh if they were trying to run that business in today's world you know they would have really struggled I think and so there was something there about but a lot of small businesses their profit margins are not huge and they don't need somebody all the time like me all the time but they could do with just being able to tap in when they need either a pretty quick instant answer or something at a higher level yeah in terms of you know it it, you know i don't know a racist a grieve a race grievance or something like that where they really need some real expert so in terms of gap in the market i sort of thought you know what, if I set this up, I could do this on an almost helpline type basis. I could work, be based wherever I wanted to be based, whether that was at home, whether I was on holiday in Spain or, you know, visiting parents or anything like that because I could get emails and I could take calls wherever I was. Yeah. Uh, it was, I could have my dog again. So that was the plan. And um, so... I had actually um, negotiated my exit, um, which, because Unite was such a fabulous business, one was able to have open and honest and um, good conversations and say, actually, do you know what? This is what I'm thinking of. Let's make this work for both of us. I then got pregnant, um, which sort of threw a bit of spanner in the works, really. (laughs) So I went back and my bravery um, sort of um, deserted me at that point. I went back and said, you know, you really didn't want me to go. <laughs> he said, what oh, good are you saying? I said, yes, but I do want to tell you I'm pregnant. I'd like to say, but I'm pregnant. And they said, not a problem at all. Delighted. I took a very short maternity leave and went back to work. 
But what I found was actually, you know, rightly or wrongly, it's very hard to do that type of job and get the level of commitment I wanted to and have a five-month-old baby. And I guess, so and I guess, I, and I guess, all the things that were negative or the reasons for not wanting to be there in the first place still existed. So this, yes, exactly. This, yeah, is, this exactly. is often the, this is often the thing with people that leave jobs and attempt to stay for some reason. The, yes. you know, it rarely works out well if you've already decided to go. So, but I can see yeah. where the pregnancy would be. I think that's, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. So okay. So you you stop so, your business. So you get your business going. Then I mean that's a challenge in itself for most people, isn't it? Because it's a very different mindset being an entrepreneur and running a business and delivering a service and doing customer calls and such like, and sales, mm. and accounts, mm. and all those different mm. things. It's a very different world from having it all just done and rushing around the country being in HR. Exactly, yes. It, it is very different, and lots of learning, and quite a steep learning curve. I suppose I've always sort of said my my sort of preference is not to do sales and I'd like to think that you know in HR consultancy you don't actually sell as such um and I have to say um I didn't grow my business rapidly because I didn't particularly want to I made the choice to go self-employed set the business up because I didn't want the pressures that I had previously so I wanted to have time to spend with my son and things like that. So I took it pretty slowly, to be fair. Yeah. And I think pretty much, I would say, 99% of my business came from referrals and still does, actually. Um, I always describe myself when I'm doing networking, which I do obviously quite a bit of. So I get my workouts from networking or from referrals. I tend to describe myself as a distress, distress purchase. So it's usually somebody is talking to somebody who is complaining about a problem that they have that relates to employing people. And that person will say, oh, I know, I was spending, give her a ring, she'll sort that out for you. Um, And that is often how I get my business. Now I have, you know, I've been going since 2004, I have a bigger client base because I get a lot of more proactive referrals so I have a friend who's setting up a business. I've told him to ring you to help with contracts because you've been great helping us set up yeah. and that type of thing. So, um, that, so that's interesting. So what you're implying there, if anyone starts in their own business and needs to take a more referral-based approach, you've got to have a bit of courage in the early years because I'm guessing it takes quite a while to build that momentum to get you going. You've got to have a, you've got to have a degree of, um, well, money in the bank to get you started, but also a bit of... Um, resilience to be able to have the confidence that you will succeed in the longer term absolutely i think that's that's totally true because i i negotiated an excellent exit from unite when i left that gave me a bit of a cushion what i discovered is that you need a critical mass if you're going to do lots of referrals it's the critical mass thing now having been going for as long as i've been going i've got you know touch with a lovely number of clients who are brilliant i have very good relationships with them and they will do referrals for me in the early days when you've only got two or three clients there is probably unless you're very proactive there's a limited number of um, referrals they are able to give you so yes exactly i think you know um, I think money in the bank definitely helps because that helps re- relieve some of that stress. And I think for most people, getting out, networking, and you know, getting their face known 
I genuinely think it, you know, probably takes three years. Right. Um, that's that would be my sort of before you're starting to get recognised, I guess, to some extent. I've been, I, we relocated five years, five and a half years ago now, and came back to came back to the, the West Country. So I had no business network down here. And so I've done lots of networking. I'm just getting to that point where I'll meet something and go, oh, yes, I've heard of you, or I've heard of Enlightened HR. But it's taken time, and it's taken getting out there, doing networking events, and getting involved in business events and things like that. So, um, so it's, interesting, it's, it's interesting you talk about this idea of not selling, and yet you talk about networking. And for many people, yeah. you know... Basically, you're hustling, aren't you? It doesn't really matter whether it's sales or whether it's networking. You've got to put yourself out and meet people. That's important, isn't it? You have, but I think, I don't know where I heard it, but there's a thing about networking that you're not selling to the people in the room, you're selling to their network. So I never try and sell to the people in the room unless they say, oh, actually, you could help me with this. I'm always sort of saying... Like I say, actually, generally, I'm a stress purchase. At some point, you will be talking to somebody who's having a problem with their staff. And you'll go, oh, I met that woman at that networking event, Alison Bennett in Light and HR. Um, you know, get in contact with her. And that's how I tend to do my networking. It, it's more about, um, I guess, um, recognition of the name and things like that, rather than trying to do a direct sale. Yeah, one of the principles is you should always ask people for referrals and things like that. I have to say, I'm probably not brilliant at doing that. Um, you know, it's just not necessarily my way of being, to be fair. <laughs> but, but, but what you are recognising and what you're actually saying is the quality of the work speaks for you, actually. And that's yes. and really, that's the best way of all. That's always been my method of way of thinking about it. You know, you win your next yeah. piece of business from the last piece of business you did, if, you, if you're good at what you do. Yes, I agree with that. And testimonials are really important. I try to get clients to do testimonials. I have a couple that I, I did start doing um, little video interviews, you know, like just saying, some, could you just talk about what I do and what I've done for you? And I've got several of those on the website. Um, and I think those sort of things speak volumes. Um, and I think the fact that I do get all my work through referrals, and I will tell people that because I'm very proud of that because you know if you're not doing a good job for one person they're not going to well they're not going to renew the contract but also they're not going to um they're not going to refer you on so the fact that i've managed to build a business through referrals rather than through marketing and and sales in inverted commas you know i think sort of speaks volumes for the level of service that, um, that people get and the quality of the relationship i think yeah. is absolute key that's really encouraging, I think, for people. So, so where's the organisation? Where's the business now? What sort of things are you dealing with? What's, what are you noticing about the modern world and, and the sort of challenges you're facing now in life? With I think, sorry, one of, the, one of the key things, interestingly, and I, this is very present in my mind at the moment because I've just been with a client the first thing this morning. I went in to talk to one of their team about flexible working. He wants to do a stage retirement. Went in to do that, and they the the client said, "Oh, actually, while you're here, most fatal words. Um, can you have a look at this? We've had um, 
we've had an email from somebody into their sort of web at address that they picked off, up off their um, their website, and one of their staff has made some comments which could be seen potentially as racist on Facebook. Right. And I think social media is absolutely, it's so, even if you're not a social media person, it's still in everybody's life and you actually can't avoid it. And people just don't, a lot of people just don't get it. And this chap, we called him and I said, I just want to check that this is definitely your Facebook account. Oh, yes, he said. Right, okay, fine, well, we need to think about what we're going to do and, you know, how we take this forward. But, you know, we're sort of talking to him about it. And he said, well, I, you know, I have a private profile. And I said, yeah, but people share that, share it on, share it on. You don't know who's getting that and who's seeing what comments you've made. And evidently somebody has seen this comment somewhere and has contacted the company because he has the company name as his employer on his profile. Right. And people treat social media, I think particularly actually younger people, because I think they've grown up with it, that um, they treat it like a mate. Yes. So people will put, and there was, there's a case, and it was at B&Q, where one of their staff slagged the company off how much he hated working for them and this sort of thing on Facebook. They got to hear of it went through a disciplinary procedure, dismissed him. He went to tribunal. And one of his comments when he was in the tribunal was, but I thought it was just like talking to my mate down the pub over a pint. Yeah. And the, the tribunal chairman said, it isn't. You know, it is a public forum. It is not the same. He lost, the, the employee lost the tribunal. BMQ won the tribunal. But it was... Um, you know, it's very interesting that, that a lot of people take that sort of feeling that well, it's a private conversation, and actually it isn't. Yes, and I think and I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because that venting process, that you know, lack of emotional sort of recognition about who you are and how you project yourself is is an issue all over the place, really, isn't it? And it's a sort of a wider problem as well in society. The, um, have you seen any incidents of um, sort of increased stress and pressure and um, some of the mental health things which are being talked about in the wider press at the moment? Do you, do you see in- increased evidence of that as well? Yes, absolutely. I think there's. I think in general terms, there is more stress and pressure in businesses. I think that where we're at now is the profile of mental health is being raised that's fantastic because actually a lot of people hid that if they had a problem for a long time they hid it that's right i think it's becoming more prevalent i think there is an element of people blaming workplace stress when actually it isn't always that or it's a contributory factor my experience is that sometimes it is workplace-based, and it isn't anything else. But often, it is wider than that. It, workplace stress may exacerbate a situation, but because there are other stressors outside of work, actually, they all add up. And it's de- trying to deal holistically with things is very difficult. And sometimes it's easier to blame work, isn't it? Because that's that's very... 
you, you displace the problem to yeah. some extent. I can blame work, I can displace it from myself or from my home environment, from my social environment and that type of thing. Whereas I think it's very generalistic to say it, but often it is, it's not just one thing, it's, it's a whole range of things. But yes, I do think there is more um, stress and pressure around. And I think now we're getting to that point of a recognition that a lot of illnesses actually are stress-related. Yeah. So you may be presenting with one thing, but actually stress is probably causing or exacerbating that. I think the next stage is raising the profile of resilience and how you deal with that type of thing and the practices that you bring into your life in order to cope with stress in a general sense, not just work-based stress. And I think employers have a responsibility for that, but I think society does as well. And it's interesting, my son's 12 and a half now, he's at secondary school, and as part of their school philosophy, they've been doing a project for the last 18 months on um, on well-being and doing well-being practices in um, in school. And that's interesting that they're trying to catch the, the pupils at that sort of age to try to... So he'll say, oh, I have to practice my meditation for 10 minutes a night and things like that. And I think you... You have to bring. I've got a friend who's a head teacher, and she's done a mindfulness um, program to bring mindfulness into schools. And um, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's what we should be doing: building that resilience for a more holistic approach to life in general. Oh, well, Alison, I'm hardly going to disagree with anything you've just said there, really, am I? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I? I'd like to say we planned that, but we certainly didn't. And um, but, no. I, but I agree with you. I think. Um, I think also there's a problem with um, some of these definitions about stress and pressure and, and well-being. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's a bit. Um, I was a client of mine says um, she likes our approach because we're not that we're not very flowery skirt about the whole thing. We're quite pragmatic yes. and performance driven. Yeah. And I think a lot of people yeah. a lot of people get empowered in terms of their own resilience by understanding that they have choice and control over everything they do. And um, and I think you're an example of that in action, actually. And you you under you I think you under recognise the fact that you've made some amazing decisions and you've achieved some really brilliant things. I think you're a bit of an inspiration, I'd say, for some people. Oh, thank you. Wouldn't, wouldn't you? I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of people on the cusp of thinking about you know setting out on their own or you know um, people sort of my sort of age, you know, sort of think, thinking, well, I've got a ton of expertise. You know, how could I? How could I? How could I thrive in a new sort of world? And I think going out on your own, doing the sorts of things you've done are possible if you've got a plan, you've got criteria. And I like your realism about saying it takes an amount of time to do something well. Yeah. You know, you can't, there's no such thing as a one night wonder. I think on the internet, famously, people say Fred blogs as, a one, as an overnight sensation. And then you realize they've been working for 10 and a half years before that overnight just took place. And yes, um, I think people forget that, don't they? I think there's there's another thing with becoming with going self-employed. I I was always scared stiff about doing it. Originally, I would never have considered it, and I always said, "Oh no, there's too much risk, and um, actually, it's too scary, and I can't do sales." And those were my negative sort of can't do this sort of reasons for not doing it. But 
Well, a couple of things that I've realised, I was doing some outplacement support with somebody a few years ago, and he had been, uh, in, in his time, both employed and self-employed, and he was employed, but being made redundant by my client. And I said to him, you know, well, what what's your intention? Do you want to find another job and be employed, or do you want to be self-employed? And he said, I don't know. I haven't really decided. And we talked around... Some of the advantage. At one time, he used to say, "I want to be employed because I'm because I'm risk averse, and I want the surety of employment." Nowadays, there is no surety of employment, and if you are self-employed and you have a range of clients, actually, you're spreading your risk. Yes. Because if you yes. lose one client, you might have you know two, three, four, a hundred other clients. So actually, you spread your risk. Um, and that is that's quite huge because now that I'm afraid I do a lot of redundancies, it, it's part of today's world. And those people will get pulled in, put at risk, and probably six weeks later in a small business, you know, six weeks is quite a long time. You know, it could be two weeks plus your notice period. You're out of a job. Yeah. And you are literally out of a job. And if you've not been there very long, Redundancy money is an absolute pittance, frankly. Yeah. So, um, so, so, Alison, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at time. And I want to be very courteous to your time as I'm sure. sort of taking place on this. So, if someone needs to have the services of a really senior HR professional, someone who really knows what they're talking about, but just needs them from time to time, how would people get hold of you? Um, well, I'm on the web. I've got my business is enlightenhr.com, so quite easy to find on that. And I always work on the principle of phone me up, let's have a chat. If you've got a problem, let's see what we can do about that there and then and in the moment and give you some advice. And then we'll talk about whether we work together going forward. Good. You know, whether we like each other, whether we can get a relationship going and that sort of thing. So one of the things you do is you have a very useful um, newsletter that, um, that gives updates yeah. to HR practice as well, which I personally read and find very useful. Yeah, we do that, and there's lots of information on the website as well. So um, there's all the blogs, and we stream in all the latest cases and that type of thing. So, yeah, so there's a lot of, lot of information around. But I really like to talk to people. So people ringing me up and saying, hi, we've not met, but, um, you know, I heard you in that interview with Russell Thackeray, and it sounded interesting, and actually can we have a, have a chat about whatever it is? You know, that's, that's perfect to me. I love that. Right. Alison, it's been really fascinating um, hearing from you today. I think, if, I think it's been really interesting. And I hope a lot of people listen to what you said and there's some really practical things for people to get a grip with. So thanks so much for your time. I hope some people contact you if they do. And um, perhaps even we could pick up sometime later in the year for a, a second instalment because I think we've almost just scratched <laughs> the surface about employment and how, how as an employee can, you can deal with some of these issues as well as um, an update on how you're getting on. Yeah, that would be perfect. It's been a pleasure. Right, well, thanks ever so much. Take care, and I shall speak to you soon. Thanks, Russell. Bye. Thanks for listening today. I hope we really got some value from that. I certainly enjoyed it myself. Remember, there's only other podcasts and with tools and techniques, different speakers and different resources available in this series of Resilience and Ravel, so please feel free to subscribe. Why not also drop across to Facebook and join our group, Resilience and Ravel, and join in the conversation. Also, if you wanted to whip over to iTunes and drop us a, a preview or a review, that would be fantastic. Thanks ever so much. 
You can get hold of us at qedod.com or at personalresilience.com where you can get hold of free ebooks, resources, some online courses, and even some coaching. But whatever happens, I look forward to you joining us on the next edition of Resilience and Battles.